So as we've been going through uh, this series in 2 Corinthians, you may remember if you've been here several weeks ago, we kind of talked about why Paul even wrote this letter to begin with. And it all starts with just kind of a broken relationship where he had, a, he had a situation where he wasn't quite sure if the Corinthian church, these people that he loved, that he cared so much for, um, if they even still liked him, if they even still respected him. Uh, so he was just kind of worried about, is, you know, is this relationship going continue, to continue to go on? Is it going to continue to work? What's going to happen there? And so he had started this church, and you know, during part of the time when he was away from them, uh, several, several kind of problems came up. First, they had, they had false teachers come in with really bad theology and lead them astray. Uh, they started to treat people unfairly. They turned a blind eye to major sins. They even, at one point, this church maybe had split into factions around who their favorite preacher and public speaker was. Does that sound familiar? Maybe we've seen a little bit of that just even in our, in our day and age around the world. And so Paul was very direct with this problem, and he wrote them a letter. He calls it a painful letter. And then he's not quite sure if after that letter, if, if they still really like him or respect him or care for him. And so he feels this immense anxiety and worry about what, what could be going on. And I imagine you've probably had something like this happen to you, where you've had a close relationship that's been damaged or perhaps strained, where some hurtful words were exchanged. Maybe you thought, you could trust this person, then you learned, oh, I, I can't trust you like I thought. And there might be someone in your life that you, uh, you don't want to really see ever again. You don't want to talk to them ever again. Or maybe you would. You'd like to put the relationship back together, but it's just messy, it's painful, it's, it's difficult, and so you just sort of stay at a distance and you just don't know how to fix it. And so 2 Corinthians is all a letter about Paul trying to fix a broken relationship. And he gets to kind of the heart of everything in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11. And this is sort of, if you will, uh, this is kind of the center of the whole letter. This is kind of where everything comes together for him. So if you want to turn in your Bible or on your devices to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 11, that's where we're going to start. So Paul begins, Since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. That's a strange way to start. Especially on Easter. It's a strange way to start with, well, we know what it is to fear the Lord. Isn't Easter supposed to be like happy and joyful and exciting? Why, why on earth would we start with, you know, with fear? Why would we do that? Well, the reason is because the sentence right before this, Paul's talked about, he's been talking to the Corinthians about all the pain and all the suffering he's gone through, all the challenges he's faced. And he mentions that, well, at the the end of the world, we're all going to have to come face to face with Christ on a judgment seat, and we're going to be judged for whatever we did, whether it was good or whether it was evil. And so he's like, well, so we have this, this fear, because we know that's coming, we know that's, going to, we know that's going to happen, we know we're ultimately going to be held accountable. So here's kind of the first truth that Paul is getting at. He says, basically, the fear of God leads you to not having to fear God. Because when you fear God, it leads you, the goal, the point of all of that is, it's supposed to lead you to make a change. The fear of God is supposed to convict you that something in your life isn't right, and you need to confess your sins and change the direction of your life, which is what the Bible calls repentance. And so Paul says, hey, we, we have this fear of the Lord so that we can, we can change, we can be different, we can repent. 
But when you fear God, well, that also means you know, you know that God is powerful and that he is serious about sin, but it also means you recognize, well, he's loving and he's graceful. So when we repent, when we confess our sins, when we turn to him, we know that he's gracious and just and will hear us and forgive us and help us to, to grow and help us to live a transformed life. So that's where Paul begins. That's really important because of where he goes next. So then he says, since then, we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it is also plain to your conscience. We are not trying to commend ourselves to you again, but are giving you an opportunity to take pride in us so that you can answer those who take pride in what is seen rather than in what is in the heart. If we are out of our mind, as some say, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So Paul basically knows, hey, this judgment is coming, so because we have this fear of the Lord that leads us to not actually fear God, well, what do we try to do? We try to persuade others. We try to convince other people, hey, this is coming, but you can change your life. Like, there's hope. There doesn't have to be fear. You don't have to live afraid of God. You can actually have joy and have this relationship with God. And so that's what he's trying to get at. But what's so strange for me is, you know, Paul's writing a letter trying to fix a relationship. And to me, his tactics seem a bit odd. Because probably what we would do is, you know, when something's gone wrong, is you would give a list of like apologies. Like, I'm so sorry I did this and this and this and this. And here's all the ways I'm going to try to make it up to you. Here's everything I'm going to do. Or you might, you know, or maybe someone that has done this to you where they, they kind of beat themselves up to get kind of some sympathy. Like, you know, they start, oh, I'm such a terrible person. I'm so bad at this. I can't believe, you know. And you're trying to get kind of the sympathy card. But Paul doesn't do any of that. He doesn't start to give a list of apologies. He doesn't beat himself up. He doesn't play a sympathy card. Instead, he just goes straight to Jesus. I think it's interesting. So verse 14. For Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, you know, the reason we're here celebrating is because 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on the cross, that's the moment as if, well, that's the moment as if we all actually died. We all had to face what we deserved, well, what we should have gotten, what we should have earned, and what we should have deserved, but instead, Jesus stepped into our place. And Paul does not write, well, he, Jesus, he died for some people. He says, no, he, he died for everyone. He died for every single person, and all we have to do is just accept that that is true and live inside of that truth. So Paul's point is, well, since, since Jesus died for us, well, we should all live for him. It only makes sense. It's only right. That's what he's getting at. And I love what uh, Eugene Peterson wrote years ago. He's a pastor who served many years in Montana before he passed away, but he wrote, he wrote this. Jesus saves us from wasting our lives in the pursuit of cheap thrills and trivializing diversions. Jesus enables us to take seriously who we are and where we are without being seduced by the intimidating lies and illusions that fill the air so that we needn't be someone else or somewhere else. So when we live for ourselves, what happens is we end up chasing things that are pretty much meaningless. We try to chase some version of ourselves or some sort of a dream, and Paul says, look, that's, that's all great, but that, that's just trivial. It doesn't really matter. It's not really going to last. 
But instead, when you look for Christ, where you are and who you are is exactly good with you. You know how to trust Jesus with where he's got you and who he has made you to be. So instead of spending years running after something only to find out it's just a mirage, we actually can have truth. And so Paul's saying, hey, I'm not motivated here by selfish reasons. I'm not motivated to be somebody that I'm not. I'm motivated by the fear of the Lord and the love of Christ. Those two things come together, and that sounds like that shouldn't work, but it does, because fearing God leads you to not fearing God, which helps you know just how much God loves you. And so, with that kind of as his foundation, Paul begins to explain these these two changes that happen when you begin to live for Christ instead of for yourself. And those are just what the next couple verses are. So look at verse 16, the first change he talks about. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. So the first change is you begin to see people from God's perspective. And what does it mean to look at somebody from a worldly point of view? Well, maybe it looks like uh, you value somebody more by, by their money. You value somebody more for their, their personality or how you know, charismatic they are instead of their character. It might mean you just, anytime somebody makes a mistake, you just totally discount them, discredit them. You know, that's kind of what ca- cancel culture is today. You just, oh, you made this mistake 10 years ago? Well, we don't want to hear from you anymore. Maybe you dismiss someone because they don't think like you. It's pretty much you just look at all the outside. You look at these things that Paul says are, are meaningless, they're trivial, they're not going to actually work. And even Paul, just a few verses ago, he said, so that he wants the Corinthians to be able to take pride in what is, what is unseen. He says, we're trying to tell you this so you can defend yourself from those who take pride in what is seen rather than what is unseen. And so Paul's getting to this whole point that we don't, because we've lived for Christ now, not ourselves, we don't look at all the outside stuff. We don't look at all the, all the successful accomplishments our world says matters. We look at what matters to Christ. And what matters to Christ is a transformed heart. And so it matters what's on the inside of your life. And it's hard to see what's on the inside of somebody's life. It takes time. It's not immediate. It takes hard work to see what's in there. And so for Paul, it means, hey, we care more about somebody's character. We think that success looks a lot more like sacrifice. Forgiveness can cover past mistakes and sin. Shame and guilt can always be removed and forgiven. And everyone's made in God's image. So everyone matters. Everyone's important because Jesus died for all. Not for some, but for all. So uh, there was this uh, man who walked into a church one day, and he just, he just kind of wanted to look around at the church, but he was stopped by a couple, couple guys in the building, and they said, uh, excuse me, sir, what, you know, what are you here for? What can, we, what can we help you with? And he said, oh, I, just, you know, I just came in. I just wanted to look around your building. It looks really beautiful. I just want to take a look around. And they said, well, uh, do you have a voucher? He said, no, I, I don't have a voucher. Do I need a voucher to look in your church? No, you don't need a voucher for that. You need a voucher for, uh, for food. And that's when the guy realized, oh, they think I'm homeless. And he, you know, he admits he was wearing baggy jeans and a hoodie and, a, and had a beanie on. So he looked maybe like he could have been living on the streets. But he's like, no, I don't, I don't need food, guys. I just wanted to look around your building. And they, you know, they kind of you know, took the little half step forward, kind of like, you should, you should leave and he was like, well, is, is your pastor in? Can I, can I meet with your pastor? And they said, uh, he's, he's in, but he's just really busy right now. He doesn't have time to meet with you. 
said, well, that's fine. I understand. Can I leave him a message? And they're like, well, he's, he's really busy. I don't, know if he's got, I don't know if he's got time. I don't think we can do that. And again, inched a little, little closer, like, you need, a, you need a leave, sir. And, you know, of course, on the inside, this guy, he's getting pretty mad. He's getting really frustrated. He's like, why are you treating me like this? Like, what's going on? And it was about that point that somebody else walked into the, into the kind of the lobby area where they were and came up, came up to this guy and said, oh, my goodness, I'm so glad you're here. We've been waiting for you. We're so excited. Hey, do you need anything else for this weekend? And he's like, oh, no, I just, just a bottle of water probably will be fine. I'll be good to go. Like, oh, great. We'll have everything taken care of. You know, here's my phone number. If you need anything at all, please, please call me. Let me know. We're so excited. Again, we're so excited to have you here. And then that person goes on. And these two guys who stopped him had this shocked expression on their faces. They realized the man they've been giving so much trouble is their guest preacher for the weekend. And they're suddenly like, oh, we are so sorry. Hey, you know, we can take you to the pastor's office right now. And after that, we'd love to give you a tour of the building. And that guy thought to himself, you know, nothing changed. I'm still the same person. I'm dressed exactly the same. But your perception of me just changed. Because you realized I might not be some homeless guy. I'm your guest preacher for the weekend. Ah. And that's a little bit of what Paul is, is getting at. When you look at the worldly appearance, you look at it on the outside. You look at what you can clearly see and judge and evaluate, and you determine, is this person important enough to me right now? And Paul's like, well, because we live for Christ now, we don't do that. Because everyone's important, because Jesus died for everybody. So everyone matters. And even, even at a church, sometimes we are not immune to that. We still can fall into that trap of, of kind of looking at a at people in a worldly way. But Paul says, no, we don't, we don't do that anymore because we live for, for Christ. And he says, in fact, we, we used to even judge Christ that way because when Jesus came to earth, everybody looked at this guy like homeless carpenter from this backwater town called Nazareth. That can't be the Messiah. He's, can, nothing good comes out of Nazareth. You gotta be kidding me. And yet people were amazed as he schooled the Pharisees with all their years of religious education and asked them questions they, they didn't know how to answer and stumped them left and right. And how can this simple carpenter heal people, raise a guy like Lazarus? Like, what is going on? And so Paul realizes there's so much more important things you have to look at. And God cares about so much more about what's inside of us, that we're being transformed, that we're being renewed day by day. That's the first change, your perspective of how you look at people. But the second change is very important, too, and it comes in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. So when you live for Christ, there's a transformation that takes place. And it's not always on the outside. You can't always see it. But it's something's going on inside of us that's changing us, that's transforming us. And so the second change is Jesus replaces the old you with the new you. He takes the old you and gives you the new you. Uh, there's this Swiss company. You actually maybe own their product, don't even know their name. Uh, they're called Victorinox. And they're the company that made the Swiss Army knife really, really popular. They made it to where, I mean, it used to be the classic gift for anything, anything at all, graduations, birthdays, you know, uh, work anniversaries, anything like that, you get somebody a nice Swiss army knife. But after September 11th, that really changed because 
The airline companies and TSA decided we need to ban Swiss Army knives from being in your carry-on luggage. So Victorinox knew this is really bad for our business. So we, we've got to do something about this. So they immediately decided to make massive changes to their company. They didn't, you know, uh, sort of play the, play the victim. They didn't play a blame game. They didn't lay off a bunch of people. They didn't go, like, try to fight the TSA and convince them, no, you've got to let Swiss Army knives be allowed. You, you don't understand. They didn't do that. They instead decided, all right, we're going to save a bunch of money so we don't have to lay anybody off. We're going to increase new product development. We're going to invest in new things. And they rallied their entire staff around solving the problem. So what are we going to do now? How can we change? What can we do? And after doing that, their company came up with a number of new products and new things they could sell. So, pre-9-11, knives at Victorinox accounted for 95% of the company's revenue. And 80% of that was just the Swiss Army knives that they sold. So today, Swiss Army knives at Victorinox are only 35% of the company's total revenue. They now sell travel gear, watches, and fragrances. And that's caused them to nearly double their revenue from pre-9-11. So you had a company that was all about making Swiss Army knives, and they completely changed to be somebody different. Now, there, there's two reasons I'll tell you that story. The first one is because when Jesus transforms you, he doesn't like just completely get rid of everything about you, like wipe your personality and turn you into like a robot or a puppet. That's not what that means. Just like Victorinox, 35% of them is still Swiss Army knives they're known for. And so when you're transformed, there's a part of us that God keeps because it's good. It's not bad. It's not sinful. It's who you are. It's who God made you to be. And so he leaves that alone, but there's a lot of the rest of us that he begins to change and get rid of and add to to make us look more like Jesus. And the second reason is this. Their CEO at the time he said, he said this about the change. He said, we do not think in quarters. We think in generations. We do not think in quarters. We think in generations. And so for a lot of us, I mean, the temptation is to think about following Jesus as only like a, a personal decision. It's just, do, do I need Jesus? Do I want Jesus? Do I want to live my life because of Jesus? But do you ever think about the generations that following Jesus changes? Like, what about your kids? What about your grandkids? What about your great-grandkids? Because when you decide to follow Jesus, I mean, absolutely, he's going to change your life. But he's not just going to change your life. He's going to begin to change your family and your family tree. And the sorts of, you know, habitual sins that have been a part of your family dynamics for years, Jesus can begin to change. And that can make an impact on your kid's life and on your grandkid's life. Because Jesus just doesn't change you. He, he, he'll change your whole family if you let him. And he can break cycles of sin and brokenness. So here's the foundation of all of this. It's this one word, reconciliation. So here's, here's what Paul writes. And this is what happened on Easter morning nearly 2,000 years ago. Starting in verse 18. He says, All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. 
as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So I want you to notice that Paul says, he doesn't say that we get to reconcile ourselves to God. He says, no, God reconciled himself to us. Because this is the good news of the gospel. It's that God made the first move. It's that there's very little we're expected to do when it comes to this repairing of our relationship with God. He doesn't count our sins against us. He doesn't hold anything against us. He does all the work to save us and repair our relationship with him. He does all the work, and he did it first. You see, he, he didn't turn his back on us, but he could have. He didn't ignore us, even though we would understand. After all, knowing what we've done, yeah, yeah. We would say, that's totally fair, God, for you to turn your back on us, for you to ignore us, but he didn't do that. So instead, Jesus repaired our relationship with God. Because here's the deal. No matter how hard you try, you can't fix your relationship with God on your own. You can, I mean, it doesn't matter how many, how many good deeds you do, it doesn't matter. You could win the Nobel Peace Prize. And that God's like, that's great, but that isn't fixing our relationship. Because what we did deserves so much worse. And so God, in his grace and his mercy, decided to not count our sins against us. And so, going back to Paul saying, we have this fear of the Lord, we know there's going to be this judgment day, but oh my goodness, the good news is that judgment day is going to go so much differently than what any of us would expect. Because what we would expect to happen is, you know, you walk into the courtroom and they just start to read off your rap sheet. And you know what that is. You don't need me to tell you what that is. Everything you've thought, everything you've done, everything evil, they would just start to go through the list. Everything you've done for your whole entire life. And you're thinking, oh, this does not look good. What am I going to get sentenced with? And before the sentencing comes, Jesus takes the rap sheet, takes your name off of it, puts his name on. And so they let you go. You're innocent. Go. You're free. But Jesus is going to have to pay for all that. And he's going to take care of it. And he did. So when Paul says one day we're going to have to face the judgment seat of Christ, there is this reality of coming face to face with Jesus and being held accountable for everything we've ever done and realizing, yeah, I didn't do a lot of good, did I? Oh my goodness. And no matter how much good you do, it doesn't outweigh the, the evil that we've done and the sin in our lives. And so all we have to do, it's not like, well, here's my list of apologies, God, and here's all the things I promised to do to make it better, because none of that's ever going to outweigh this list over here. But the good news is, Jesus, is, all you have to do is make Jesus your Lord and Savior and follow him. And he takes that list, and he says, I'll take care of this, you, you go on, you're good, you're free. And no one's ever going to bring it up again, no one's ever going to talk to you about it again, no one's going to try to shame you for the things you've done in your past. Jesus has got it, he'll take care of it. But it's even bigger than that. Because what Paul's getting at with this idea of reconciliation is that Jesus' resurrection doesn't just repair our relationship to him and to God, it also repairs our relationship to everybody else. Because you know, we live in a world, I don't mean I don't need you, I don't need to tell you this, you you see it. We live in a world that's just becoming incredibly more and more divided. It's easier just to hate each other because we don't agree. 
It's either to judge each other for differences in opinion, and then what do we do? We split into factions, and we cancel people we don't like, and we ignore people we don't agree with. And so whether it's just some impersonal person out there, you don't really know them at all, you just know they tweeted something you don't like, or whether it's somebody really close to your life, and you say, I, I cannot stand to be around you anymore because of what you did to me. What Jesus did allows all of us to reconcile with each other. And so the message of Easter is that message of reconciliation. Because of Jesus, we can actually come back together again as people, as families, and as God's children. We don't have to be separated and fragmented out anymore. But it's even deeper than this, because when you decide to live for Jesus, you become what, you become what Paul calls an ambassador for Christ. And what's an ambassador do? Well, you go and you represent someone to someone else. And you say, let me tell you how great this person is. On behalf of them, let me share with you how good they are. So you just help tell the good news to others that, hey, you know, I've been forgiven of everything. You know how incredible that is? You know that I had this broken relationship with my creator, but he fixed it? And so here's what that means for us as a church. It means that the church is a resurrection community. A resurrection community. That means we're a group of people that believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, conquering sin and death and shame and guilt. And that means it completely transforms our lives individually and the lives of our family and the generations of our family. And because of that truth that we, we know is true and we live into it with everything we've got, because of that, we also recognize, well, we're also not perfect. And we, we sometimes get it wrong, and we sometimes make mistakes, but we're in it together. We're a resurrection community, which means just like God didn't hold our sins against us, we don't hold sins against each other. And so there are times we look at each other and we recognize, hey, you're being a bonehead, but it's okay. I forgive you. Hey, you know what you said was pretty hurtful, but it's okay. I forgive you. We recognize that there are times when we should be further along than we are, and there's grace for that. But there's also accountability for that, because a resurrection life is the best kind of life. Because it means we're not just racing towards the end of our life, we're just heading towards the last transition where we get to go home to be with, with God in heaven. And so we encourage each other because that's what Jesus does for us. We forgive each other because that's what Jesus did for us. We live a transformed life because that's what Jesus did for us. Only through Jesus can we come back together. There's no other way to fix it. There's no other way to put it all back together. You know, and there are times in our lives where there's somebody that we desperately just have a hard time forgiving. And there are times people have asked me this basic question of, I don't know, how am I supposed to forgive this person? Am I supposed to forgive this person? My answer is, well, yeah, you do need to forgive them. How are you going to do that? I have no idea. I can't tell you exactly how to do it, but I know Jesus can forgive them. So, Instead of me giving you a really easy answer that you can just go walk out, walk out of the office and live out, it's, you're going to have to talk to Jesus about that. You're going to have to work with Jesus on how can you ever forgive that person. And you've got to work that out. So how do we live out this reconciliation kind of life? Well, there's a few ways. The first one is this. If you don't follow Jesus, you absolutely should follow Jesus. You really should. Because whether you want to take Paul's warning seriously or I'll just I'll echo the warning for you. Because the truth is, 
Jesus died on the cross for you because he absolutely loves you. And whether or not you believe that doesn't make it any less true. It's the, it's the greatest truth in the world. And he rose from the grave. And whether or not you believe that happened doesn't mean it's any less true. It's the greatest truth in the world, the greatest thing that ever happened. That a man was able to beat death and defeat sin and set us free. And so if you don't follow Jesus, you should. Because that's the only way you're going to have this resurrection kind of life. It's the only way that when you get to the end of your life and you see Jesus face to face, it's the only way that you're going to be able to have a relationship with him. It's the only way you're going to get to hear the words, well done, my good and faithful servant, instead of Jesus turning you away and saying, I don't know you. You, you don't get to come into heaven with the rest of us. And so if you don't follow Jesus, absolutely, I implore you, you really should. You really should. It's the greatest decision you will ever make because it'll change and transform your life. So if that's you, here in just, here in just a few minutes, I'm going to head to our next steps room, which is through the double doors on my right, your left. And during the next couple of psalms, feel free to come back there and talk with me about what would that look like? What does that mean? And if you're watching online, the information is going to be on the screen in a few minutes for you to, to email us or get a hold of us, and we'd love to talk with you. So that's the first thing, because the truth is, here today, you can get your relationship with God put back together. And all you have to do is accept that Jesus did that for you. But if you already followed Jesus, then the challenge for you is to be Christ's ambassador, to live your life in such a way that you can show others the, that the resurrection of Jesus really changes everything about your life. Everything. And that means the way we live and the way we talk matters a whole lot. Because people see our lives and determine if the resurrection of Jesus really is that big of a deal. So there are things we need to stop getting caught up in. Stop getting so worried about. We need to show people that, yeah, we firmly believe Jesus is still in charge. He's risen from the grave. We're not worried about all this other stuff. Because the resurrection completely changes everything about us. What we believe, who we listen to, changes everything. And lastly, if it's been a while since you've been to church, because I get it, it's Easter, and maybe some of you, you're here and you really don't want to be, but some family member dragged you along, and so I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're willing to come. But if it's been a while since you've been to church, then I want to challenge you to come back. And I understand COVID is a scary thing. COVID's got a lot of us um, worried and concerned. I get that. But maybe, you know, maybe if we're being honest, you would say, eh, I just, I just kind of got out of the habit. Like we didn't meet for a while and I just kind of got out of the habit and I've just had a really hard time getting back into the habit. I kind of like having Sundays be a little slower and I like sleeping in and okay, well, here's the message of reconciliation. We would love for you to come back. We'd love for you to be part of a resurrection community of what's going on here at Campbellsville Christian. And guess what? We're not going to hold it against you. Maybe you're afraid that I'm going to come in and people are going to be a really hard time because where, where have you been all these months? Where, what have you been doing? We're just going to be glad. We're just going to be glad you're back. We're not going to give you a hard time. We'll just be so happy that you're back with us. Because here's the deal. We absolutely would love for you to join us in Jesus' mission in the world. It's the greatest work we get to do. It's the most fun we get to have. And we don't want you to miss out on the grand adventure that Jesus has us as a community going on. We don't want you to miss out on that. And so we'd love for you to come back, not just to be here for an hour on Sunday, but to be a part of this transformational journey Jesus has all of us walking on. Because it is a grand adventure. So let this Easter be one for reconciliation. 
Whether that means you need to accept God's offer of reconciliation, then you can meet me in the next step room. Or if you need to be reconciled back into this church, we'd love for you to rejoin us in person and to grow and serve with us. And if you have been reconciled, then show the world that power. Show the world that being reconciled back to God has changed everything about your life because you know your creator. And he shows you exactly who you are and exactly where you're supposed to be. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so very much, first of all, for you coming to earth, you living a perfect life, for you being willing to go to the cross, and for you to have such an immense love for each and every one of us that you didn't count our sins against us. And you died to forgive us, but you also died so that we could have our relationship with you and with your Heavenly Father put back together. And so I thank you for that. And I also thank you, God, that we can have a relationship with you. And that at times when life is really hard, when life is really difficult, when we're confused and we don't know where to go, you're there to help lead us through those seasons. Father, I pray you continue to help us to celebrate uh, the resurrection of your son Jesus, and I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would continue to do the slow, hard, painful, difficult, yet incredibly joyful work of transforming each and every one of us one day at a time to look more and more like your son, so that we could look more and more like the people you created us to be. In your name that I pray, amen. Would you stand as we continue to worship and celebrate? Never mind. Stay seated, because it's communion. <laughs> <laughs>